All right. Hello, everybody out there in podcast land. I hope you all are doing well. Um, This is the Signal Podcast, a podcast about sense-making and leadership in the digital age. And I'm your host, Daniel Tarker. And there's been a bit of a gap in episodes, um, and I don't imagine I have any form of listenership at this point. Uh, probably due to due to that and my own failed marketing attempt. So, what I'm about to say is, I guess, more for me, more for archival purposes, more for just getting it out there in the, into the universe in a way. the The purpose of this podcast was really to um, explore these ideas around leadership and sense making um, in the Substack. That is a part of this podcast. There's a, a sub a Substack that I'm running called the Signal, um, and you can look for a link to that in the show description and subscribe to it for sure. Uh, recommend that. And the Substack was exploring the same ideas, and then the podcast part was supposed to be um, an addendum to that. Uh, um, a uh, another way of kind of exploring the same the same ideas you know that I'm exploring in the Substack, and to a degree that has worked. I'm gonna try and be a little bit more casual with this uh, podcast than I I have in the previous few episodes that I've posted, and in terms of how I'm delivering it, not not trying to stick strictly to the uh, pod to the to the content in the Substack and just maybe summarizing it and riffing off of um, uh, yeah riffing off the the content in the Substack. So so that's what we're gonna do uh, with this episode today. And the last few episode uh, last few Substack postings I have done um, have been entitled "Deleting Elon Musk." Part one and two, and that's you know a tongue-in-cheek. And so we'll use Elon Musk's uh, purchase of Twitter and the controversy around that as um, an example to dig into Jonathan Haidt's moral principles uh, framework. And so, but before we go, before we go there, I want to talk a little bit about reading because I listened to the Jonathan Haidt book as an audio book on Audible. And I like I like listening to books. I like I like audiobooks. So this is what I'm about to say is not a criticism of audiobooks. It's just an observation, and I think it's an important observation because reading is an issue, right? Readings as a as a society, we're certainly not deep as deep of readers as maybe we were a few generations ago. And reading is, you know, we can see in students that they're not reading as much and how we consume content and reading content is different because of the modality it's delivered in online reading of the reading of online content is much different than within a book for instance and so now we have all these different formats that books come in we have the you know printed book and we have digital books on Kindle and we have audible books so so they're all very different modalities of reading in, in some sense. And I, I personally right now have a preference for digital books um, because they're just very portable. I can carry a whole library on my Kindle or my iPad. 
and uh, I just have a preference for them, and I like the fact that they do have annotation features, and I know that technology is improving, and I have a feeling in the next couple of years more advanced technology is going to come um, come down the line as far as annotating digital books and, and texts, uh, which I'm looking forward to. I think that will be helpful, especially in terms of learning and being able to retrieve uh, content and, and information and site sources and things like that. Um, and I do miss the paper codex bound books format. I miss the smell of ink in particular. There's something very seductive about the smell of ink on a, on a page that uh, I do miss. But I, I do enjoy my digital books. However, audio, I, I, and I, I like the audio book format too, but I often hear people say, well, I, I like audio books because I can really understand uh, the audiobook better than if I try to read a text, which is an interesting observation. And I would argue that I think audiobooks are probably good for that, for a kind of a superficial reading experience where you're just trying to get the gist of a text, whereas a, a digital text or a paper print text allows for deeper reading because you can annotate and really engage in a dialogue around what you're reading. So I think those are things to keep in mind when you're when you're considering uh, how what type of text to read. I kind of do regret that I didn't read Jonathan Haidt's book as a text, as well as a as a print text or a digital text. Instead I read it as an audio. And you can't really annotate audio texts. At least that technology hasn't come about yet. Maybe there's some inventor listening to this podcast who'll go, hey I know just how to um, to uh, create an app that will help you annotate an audio text. Sure, it's going to come at some point. Someone will think of it. Uh, and, and then that case, when that technology comes around, then maybe my opinions around audio text will change. But until you have the annotation feature, uh, it's really hard to dig deep into uh, a text that you can't annotate and highlight and... Um, and yes, I know annotation and highlighting are two different things, and maybe that's a, a topic for a different podcast. But that's the end of that. I just wanted to throw out some thoughts on uh, the changing nature of reading and technology um, for people to chew on out there in podcast land. But really, the focus of uh, this podcast today is... Just reflecting on some of these uh, Substack posts on deleting Elon Musk <laughs> and um, uh, what Jonathan Haidt would say or how I would interpret what Jonathan Haidt would say about the, the reaction to his per uh, Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter or attempted purchase of Twitter um, on social media, like how, how people reacted on social media, which was pretty volatile, right? Uh, a lot of people uh, were either, uh, if you're on the right, left, you're very up in arms. If you're on the right, you may have been embracing Elon Musk's um, moral reasoning uh, or so-called moral reasoning around his justification for trying to uh, take over Twitter. Um, and as I... Um, record this that that purchase is still up in the air we don't know if it's going to go through uh elon musk wants to confirm that uh all the, uh, as many of the accounts that twitter claims to have are actually valid uh right now there's 
Twitter says maybe 5% are bots or fake accounts. Uh, there's speculation that there might be quite a f bit more. And I would say that that is an important question in terms of Twitter. Because uh, I think, you know, outside of everything, Twitter feels like a, a very outsized, its influence is outsized. Like, why do journalists spend so much time uh, reading and posting and write, writing and posting about Twitter and what people say on Twitter. Part of it is it's provocative and the, the culture on Twitter tends to be very uh, confrontational, it seems. I'm not on Twitter a lot. Uh, you know, I do agree that seems like a place for elites and I'm definitely not among the elites uh, as far as political or journalistic or celebrity elites uh, who engage in their back and forth on Twitter, um, definitely not amongst that amongst that camp. And so it's never been my platform of preference. And it seems like Twitter's not really the preference for most people. Uh, I think TikTok and uh, Snapchat and other platforms have. Uh, much more, um, a high, much higher number of daily users than Twitter does. So the fact that so many news articles are based on Twitter, or what people are saying on Twitter, seems strange. It does seem like a strange thing. Uh, so I don't, and that that it's almost like it's become a habit amongst journalists just to do that. Um, but maybe it is just. That the audience on Twitter or the use the users on Twitter have a, a represent a portion of the population that have a lot of power and influence on the culture, and so that's why they're getting so much attention. But really, it just seems outsized. So I do think it's an important question: uh, how many bots are there really on Twitter? How much of uh, how? Is it really that influential uh, to our culture? I don't think it really is. Uh, I think it's more amplified by the media hype than it is in re than it is a real in reality influential thing. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how this uh, take apparent takeover of Twitter by Elon Musk uh, works out. But you know he's doing it under the auspices of free speech and wanting to bring that value black, back to the uh, digital town square, as he calls it. Uh, and again, I don't know if, if Twitter's really a town square. I, I don't think it's that influential, and I don't think that many people are really paying attention to all the noise happening on Twitter. But, you know, I might be wrong there. It'll, again, be interesting to see how uh, he researches that and, and how Twitter researches that to... Uh, to make the case that it's actually worth, what, $44 billion, which is a staggering amount of money. Uh, I, I can't even wrap my mind around that amount of money. So uh, this, I guess, we should turn to uh, the righteous mind and why uh, good people are divided by politics and religion by Jonathan Haidt, where he in this book explores moral psychology um, to help us understand the increasingly volatile political and cultural divisions in the United States, especially, especially around politics and religion. And I came away some, some 
some takeaways from this. Uh, one is that leadership is always about morality and ethics. And I kind of go back uh, to a book on leadership uh, on leadership called Leadership by James McGregor Burns, which was published in 1978. And James McGregor Burns was uh, um, a scholar and researcher on leadership who introduced what has since been called the full-range leadership model, and it's a spectrum between transformational and transactional leadership with laissez-faire leadership thrown in there. And these are a spectrum of leadership behaviors, uh, transactional being um, characterized by you do this for me and I'll do this for you, an exchange of goods, and, uh, an exchange, uh, and a contingent exchange. You do well at your job and I'll give you a promotion or I'll give you more money. Um, and so it's transactional. Um, laissez-faire meaning hands-off, stepping away and not being present as a leader. Uh, and there's pros and cons to uh, the laissez-faire approach in, in the literature. Um, the, the negatives, of course, being that people don't feel like the leader is present and that uh, a real disconnect and don't feel supported because the, the leader is absent and hands off. Whereas uh, another uh, reading of laissez-faire or potential reading of laissez-faire approach that's positive is that the leader stepped back, stepping back far enough so that the, the people in the organization without supervision are allowed to innovate without the, the leader's influence. Um, take that for what you will, as you will. Take that as you will. Uh, that's a brief description of laissez-faire. And then uh, the transformational end of the spectrum, which is probably the most popular in leadership conversations, which is marked by um, several pillars of behavior or several behaviors, including uh, you know trying to influence followers with stimulating ideas, leading by example, uh, speaking to values, um, and those kind of uh, things that really build relationships with the followers. So, um, and and not to get too deep in the transformational leadership, uh, which Burns was definitely an advocate for, but on the moral dimension, you know, he always made it clear that leadership was a moral endeavor. And yes, he was speaking more about politics when he was writing about leadership and studying leadership, but people who took up his scholarship afterwards um, did, did embrace the moral aspect to it as well, and, and also uh, that leadership, and their reading of transformational, transformational leadership extended beyond the political realm to businesses and nonprofits and uh, activist groups and so forth. So, uh, you know, there is a moral dimension to leadership if you look at it through the lens of Burns. And I think all through the literature of around leadership, there is this moral dimension. So thinking about Jonathan Haidt's moral psychology, I th you know, he talks briefly in the book about transformational leadership and about part three of the book. book. I think his explanation is very cursory myself and that he treats transactional and transformational as uh, more of a binary when in fact it is a spectrum and uh, and some some interpretations uh, effective leadership is characterized by a little bit of both 
transactional and transformational leadership. It's not an either or. It's a choice and you're working within a spectrum of behaviors. And if you're uh, adept, you know when to be transactional and when to be transformational. And there's even some you know, scholars on, uh, around leadership and transformational leadership in, in particular who will say, well, most leader-follower relationships in an organization begin as a transaction. If you're going through a hiring process, that's a transaction. Here's your job description. Here's the duties I expect you to f- perform. And in exchange, I will give you money and maybe the opportunity for promotion and advancement if you do the job well. So that's a transaction. And then you move from that transactional relationship into the transformational relationship where you're uh, talking about shared values, where you're engaging in stimulating conversations and conversations and then the exchange of ideas to uh, innovate and uh, improve whatever you're doing uh, and then the leaders leading by example and uh, behaving the way he or she or they expect others in the organization uh, to behave so uh, there is this moral dimension to it and I think that's really important to to think about in terms of heights uh, moral philosophy framework and you know specifically when he highlights transformational leadership um but i guess where jonathan Haidt comes in is how do leaders determine what is moral moral or ethical um and probably more importantly, how do the followers determine what's right and wrong? Because if you are not speaking to the morals and values of the followers, if you're, there's not a shared set of morals and values and ethics, uh, then it's hard. It's harder to lead a group of people if you're if you're not if you don't have that shared foundation. Um, and so, part of the leader's job, and I think that's why organizations construct value statements and so forth is to help you know the people within an organization um galvanize around around those morals uh so i think you know the those that's important to think about um how do we know it's moral because from height's point of view we are riding an elephant uh, is the metaphor that he he uses. So we have we are riders on an elephant, and the riders uh, a metaphor for our analytical selves. An elephant is an as a metaphor for our unconscious and really emotional selves. And we're riding this elephant, and our who's actually in control? Is it the elephant or is it the rider? You know. And in in my Substack, I use this example of uh, Edgar. And here's a guy on a on a social media. Let's get back to social media since that's a theme for this uh, particular podcast. Uh, Edgar's on social media. He sees a picture of um, maybe a bunch of people yelling at a woman walking out of a courtroom, and the the title of the uh, article suggests that these are people yelling at a woman who's coming out of an abortion clinic. And Edgar, who's pro-choice, gets very enraged by this and po- shares the story on social media, you know, condemning the crowd for yelling at her. And uh, you know, maybe the, the the post goes viral. So, 
that happens, and we've all been Edgar at that point. We've seen something that's just triggered us on social media, really um, uh, hit us emotionally, and because of that, we disagree with it ethically or morally. And then he learns, Edgar learns that uh, this was a piece of misinformation, that the picture was wrongly attributed to uh, that scenario when in fact it was a picture of a woman being screamed at, a a woman who had committed murder, for instance, uh, maybe murdered her boyfriend, and the people screaming at her were members of uh, the boyfriend's family uh, yelling at her for um, getting such a light sentence for uh, the killing of their, their loved one. Well, that puts a whole different spin on that image, and now Edgar's embarrassed because you know he had such an emotional reaction to the initial story that he shared it and condemned the crowd, but now he realizes that he was a victim of misinformation uh, and was misled by the image, and it was really he didn't verify, he didn't use any a- analytics to uh, understand what what he was seeing. He just reacted, so. So that's an example of the elephant uh, that we're riding, that we often have an emotional reaction, we intuit our moral response according to height, and then we justify it later, that we're constantly just justifying our moral, um, our emotional and um, emotional re- reaction to a moral situation or what we're perceiving to be a, a moral or ethical situation. And so we've all been Edgar at some point. We all have to admit that. I certainly have. Um, and so, you know, from a leadership perspective, I think it's important for us to remember that as we've evolved, this is an evolutionary adaptation. It's, it's just who we are as human beings. And that um, we are ruled by our emotions. We're ruled by unconscious things that we can't see and that the illusion that we are analytical beings is, in fact, that. It is an, an illusion. Um, and and so we can see that in the whole Elon Musk situation when when that when that news story was released that Elon Musk was going to uh, buy Twitter, you saw this very emotional reaction that wasn't very analytical at all. People were like saying, I'm getting off, he's a terrible human being, so they clearly had biases against him. Justified or not, they were there, they were on full display, and people had their reactions and said they were quitting Twitter or um, making attacks on him and and so forth. Um, And so uh, I think that is an example of that elephant, the, the... People's predispositions and their biases were already charged up to, to have that biased response to his his attempted acquisition of Twitter without really analyzing it. And you know, the purchase of a major company is not something that happens overnight. Uh, there's a lot of steps involved, so there wasn't that thoughtful, methodical response that would have been characteristic of an analytical response. It was definitely very emotional, uh, and so we see that. We can see that clearly in this case, um, and so Height would argue that, again, we intuit our responses based on our emotional reaction and then devise what he calls a post hoc argument to support our response. So we have this negative response to what we're seeing, Elon Musk buying Twitter. Uh, we have the emotional reaction, and uh, and then we justify it 
even if we're wrong, with a post hoc argument um, to justify what our initial uh, emotional reaction was. Um, so in a sense, I would argue that uh, argues that we're not truth seekers, that human beings aren't tr seekers of truth necessarily. Uh, we're hardwired really just to be argument winners. We have our emotional reaction, we respond, we react in that way, and then we post hoc justify it with our analytics, with our analytical abilities. Um, this is interest, interestingly uh, enough, the, the elephant and the rider metaphor is also used in Smith and Ford's 2020 book, Motivating Self and Others, another uh, book I would recommend. Uh, and again, that's about uh, core values too, uh, a book about core values and what motivates us unconsciously to, to move forward and uh, engage in uh, different activities. Uh, and again, the argument from Smith and Ford is that a lot of our our core values are uh, unconscious to us. We're not really aware of them. And they have a, a really great assessment of personal goals that you can take to identify your um, your core values and the things that really motivate you the most and the things that motivate you the least. Um, but it's interesting that, that that metaphor is used. It's become pervasive in a lot of the literature around um moral philosophy and, and motivation. Um, and so I think it's important to, from a leadership perspective, to take stock of the values that propel you to take action uh, and that motivate you and uh, what are the things. So height identifies six moral dimensions that people use to intuit their reactions to moral what they perceive to be moral situations or ethical situations one is the care harm uh, dimension and this is a preference for providing care for others rather than inflicting harm or pain the fairness and cheating dimension which addresses uh, equality and discouraging from people from taking more than their fair share also addresses the free rider problem you know what are what do you do about people who uh, disproportionately benefit from a situation without contributing their fair share for making the situation possible um so yeah the fairness cheating the loyalty betrayal dimension which is a, pref a preference toward loyalty to the in-group uh and then uh and of course the opposite of that is betraying the in-group uh, and throwing them under the bus, as it were, for uh, in favor of an out group, uh, and we can see that in in, in the sense of uh, political boundaries or uh, uh, national boundaries. The in group, you know, on a nationalistic level, being the United States, and the out group being Russia, for instance. Uh, you'd want to have loyalty to your home country versus. Um, Versus a, an outside country like Russia, who might your country might have a, a contentious relationship with, and that's of course just an example of that loyalty betrayal dimension. Uh, the fourth one is authority uh, and subversion, uh, a preference towards supporting and respecting those in power and authority. Um, not again, and we're going to discuss this later. Not everyone shares all of these moral dimensions, and it's definitely certainly according to hate uh, tied to. Um, it's definitely tied to 
political and ideological preferences or inclinations. So, but for some, there's an authority and subversion, a dimension and a, res and a respect for for authority. Sanctity and degradation would be the fifth. Uh, dimension and that's a preference toward treating things as divine or sacred rather than uh, debasing them and then finally the liberty and uh, preference uh, dimension which is a preference toward promoting people's freedom uh, to self-actualize -actual rather than limit limiting their opportunities so we have these six um, moral dimensions and I think what's interesting about what Jonathan Haidt has to say about them is that, based on his research, those on, who lean left are on the left end of the spec, left end of the spectrum tend to optimize two to three of those dimensions rather than all six, and people who lean toward the conservative side of the uh, spectrum tend to utilize all six of the moral dimensions when making a judgment or reacting uh, to a situation based on ethics. So um, the and, and the three that we would see that he says we would see within the, the liberal or the, the progressive uh, left side of the uh, spec ideological spectrum would be the care harm dimension, the li and, and liberty oppression dimension, and then to a degree the fairness and cheating uh, dimension. And I think you can see that. I mean, there's a lot of talk within progressive movements about the harm done to people and that we need to care for people, and that tends to motivate a lot of behavior and reaction to things that, that arise. And then we can clearly also see the liberty and oppression aspect, wanting to reduce uh, the things that create uh, oppression within a community or population or individual and increase what they perceive as, as uh, increased liberty by removing those oppressive uh, things. And then finally, um, the fairness and cheating, uh, we can see to, do, to a degree. Um, and that they won't, you know, as far as other moral dimensions, especially the authority and subversion and the uh, loyalty and betrayal, betrayal, that's not going to speak to people on that end of the political spectrum to the same degree as it might on the conservative uh, side of the, the uh, spectrum, according to Haidt. So, um, uh, and we, you can see that. I mean, you can just reflect on the political dynamics of our of our world over the last, or of the United States, just take the United States over the past hundred years, uh, you can see like, you know, people on the left tend to have less respect or less, um, uh, put less weight into loyalty and authority. Uh, those aren't things that really are going to really speak to people uh, who have that sensibility. Uh, they're really going to care more about, um, they tend to be more anti-authority, and they tend to, not, to have less um, strict feelings about um, out-groups uh, versus in-groups. So, um, so yeah, so it's kind of interesting that, that, that there is that finding uh, that there could be uh, this moral difference depending on where you are on the ideological or, or political spectrum. 
Um, and so you can see that in, in the reaction, again, back to Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. You can see that in some of the responses. Elon Musk, uh, when he makes this uh, bid to buy, per, to buy Twitter, uh, uses the, liber the liberty and oppression moral dimension to justify his purchase. That's the moral dimension that he speaks to when he says, I want to make sure it's a platform that embraces freedom of speech. It is the equivalent of our digital um, town square. And so people need to be able to speak their minds freely without being censored. And so he's speaking to that liberty and oppression uh, moral dimension. And the response to some on the left is, well, they're responding with the care and harm a moral dimension saying, hey, wait a second, if you allow people to speak completely freely on the platform, it's going to do harm to certain marginalized populations. Uh, and here, I'm not making a criticism of either of these stances. I'm more providing an analysis of the situation through the lens of Jonathan Haidt's um, framework around um, these moral dimensions. Because I think it can, I think it serves as a good uh, example of of how these moral dimensions can play out in our society, uh, and so yeah, so I mean, you can again, you can see the care harm versus liberty oppression moral standings play out in the um, in the debate over over whether over whether Elon Musk should purchase Twitter or not. So who knows how things will play out with, with this uh, process. Uh, I really personally don't care about Elon Musk buying Twitter. I personally don't care about Twitter. I personally don't really care about Elon Musk uh, that much. Um, they are just entities out there to, to analyze. Um, and so that'll be the end of that part of the discussion then because it doesn't for me it doesn't really matter it's just an, an example to demonstrate the the what i think is the larger issue that that we have these different moral dimensions uh kind of hardwired into our brains and that different people based on their uh sensibilities and and some of that can be uh genetically ingrained some of that can be socialized and cultural uh have predispositions for how they're going to emotionally respond to certain situations uh, based on these moral dimensions, these six moral dimensions, and that certain people are going to focus on three of them. Certain people might use all six, and I'm sure there's, the, you know, if there were more research done, there'd be more variance and more subtlety in how these moral dimensions manifest. But I think it's a very interesting um, uh, uh, framework to think about in terms of leadership and, and how to lead people and how to make sense of how people respond to certain situations. You know, you might have people in your organization who are going to respond more with the care harm framework uh, or, or dimension. That's what they're going to lead with. And that's what they, that's really what motivates them uh, and, and uh, gives their, the worldview meaning is that they're reducing harm and increasing care in the world and that they want their organizations and their leaders to do the same. Uh, whereas other people are really motivated by fairness and uh, uh, oppression, uh, and however you want to view that uh, dimension. So um, 
again, these are tools to think about in terms of um, making sense of of our reality as leaders and uh, motivating people and uh, leading people. So I hope I hope that helps in a sense. Uh, well, I don't know if it's going to help, but I think it uh, hopefully it gives you something to chew on as you uh, think about your own leadership approach and how it intersects with uh, ethics and morality and uh, how you how you know this framework can help you make better sense of situations that might arise within your organization or within your sphere of influence when you're trying to, to lead folks. So I think that's uh, all for today. So make sure to uh, subscribe to the Substack and also this podcast if you liked the content or even if you just see some potential in the content uh i hope to incrementally build a community around these uh, conversations around sense making and leadership and you know really how we're going to do that in the digital age uh because i think that's where we're living so um thank you thank you for your ears thank you for your time i hope you got something from this and uh take care